Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. I'm in Nehemiah 2. We like to preach line by line, verse by verse here at Coram Deo. We see the Bible as very valuable, um, and we just like it to guide everything that we do. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Art Xerxes, when wine was before me, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, I love that that's in there, helpmate, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the providence beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that I may give, to, may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the fortresses, and the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I came to the governors in the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent me with officers of armies and horsemen. But when Sambalot, the Horonite, and the and Tobiah, the Ammonite, the servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. And then I rose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one which I rode. And I went out by night to the valley of the gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, and to the king's pools, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley, and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley of the gates, so and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer uh, derision. Okay. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also that the word the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for good work. 
when Sanibalt, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, the servant of Geshem, an Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're going to do? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right claim on Jerusalem. That's a lot. Oh, you like to do that? Yeah. I'll pray. I'll pray for Billy Glosson, who will lead us through that beautiful text. Uh, Father God, thank you so much um, that you go before us, that we can confidently arise before you and say, you are my God, Mm. you are our God, um, and that you have so much love for us, so much care for us. Um, Thank you, Lord, for your provision in our lives. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, that we can even come before you right now because of what he accomplished on the cross. Not by anything we've done or will do or have done, but it's by his blood and his righteousness alone. And I thank you for that. I thank you for uh, my hot husband. I ask that you would just go before him right now, that you would center his thoughts, center his minds, that his heart would be drawn to you, and that we would be more and more and more aware of your spirit. And it would be evident in your word, which it is, but our eyes and our hearts would be open to hear. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so yeah, we are in Nehemiah 2. Um, quick announcement, though, that it was not what Hannah shared, um, but I want to say it really quick. Um, you will see a graphic coming out um, later today, early tomorrow, um, about us regathering. Um, we have been thinking about and talking about a lot early on uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. We were just like, hey, how does this look? What, what should we do? And we felt like it was best for us to lay down our right to assemble so that we could love our neighbor well. And we still want to continue to love our neighbor well. And so kind of just observing what does that look like for us as a body, um, because we see the value in gathering together. How can we do that in a way that is both um, life-giving, but also safe for our people and safe for our community? And so the first thing that we decided to do was to slowly, um, over the last several weeks, just about the last two or three weeks, we started Um, meeting in community groups in person uh, outside. And as we've debated and talked, um, we came to the conclusion that if we're going to continue, at least for the summer, for the foreseeable future, to gather on Sundays, we're likely going to have to do that outside. And so we had been meeting at the Catawba River Baptist Association, and we just kind of, after dialoguing, decided, hey, you know, meeting inside, probably not the best idea. And so we are going to uh, be gathering outside. Um, And so the way that's going to work is going to be detailed out um, in this announcement that's going out on social media a little bit later, um, probably early tomorrow. You'll see that coming out. It's going to have more specifics, but I'll just kind of let you know that we're planning on kind of having it be a sort of drive-in service. So we're going to be able to uh, transmit our signal via FM radio. So if you want, you can just stay in your vehicle and listen. Right, like a drive-in. Or... If you would rather, you can also bring a camping chair, things like that, and plop that outside of your vehicle and sit and participate that way. We're planning to have um, kind of a small station set up where you can kind of come get some hand sanitizer, and then we have an all-in-one 
communion thing. Uh, so it's got like the wafer and the juice and everything together so that we can again be together as the people of God and celebrate. Uh, the facility will be open for bathroom use only um, and that will be kind of limited and also have one-way traffic. So we're just encouraging people to, as we gather, yes, come, sing, celebrate, but also, you know, let's maintain social distancing. Let's uh, practice the principles that are set in place uh, for our safety, for our good, but also for our community's good. Again, we want to love our neighbors well. We can't forget the second commandment, y'all. We want to be like Jesus in all that we do. And so that's a big part of it. But we're excited. So when will this happen? We have decided that July 5th, so not next Sunday, but the following. So you still got a couple weeks still to work out the logistics. We will begin gathering again. Now, some of you may be wondering, does that mean this is going to stop? Are we not going to do live streams anymore? No, we're going to continue to live stream. So you will continue to be able to safely stay at the comfort of your home if you feel like you're not ready yet to uh, venture out and about. That's totally understandable and fine. And so we would uh, invite you to participate with us digitally as we continue together. But also, in addition to that, um, if you feel uh, maybe under the weather or you're not sure what's going on, uh, we would invite you to, hey, stay home. Uh, make sure you know take proper precautions, but then don't feel like you're disconnected. You'll still be able to participate in the live stream as well. We'll still have all this set up. Um, it'll be a lot brighter, um, and so it'll, it'll look a little different. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're kind of working out the kinks and logistics of all of that. You will get more details and information. We'll have a fancy graphic and everything next week. But for now, just wanted you to go ahead and put that date on your calendar, uh, July the 5th, for us to regather. We will meet uh, where we were meeting at the Catawba River Baptist Association, but we will be uh, outside. So um, we're also going to be moving the time up a little bit. We're going to pump, uh, we're going to push it from, we gathered at 10. We're going to push that up to 845 for two reasons. Uh, the number one reason being the heat. Uh, we want to make sure that we are honoring to you guys uh, so that it's not super hot and uncomfortable and unbearable. And two, just logistically, it kind of works better for our team. So uh, we're excited about that, excited for the prospect of that, excited to be together, even if it is in an unusual kind of different way. Um, pray that you guys are well and that you can just continue to trust in and love the Lord. So, all right, let's jump in. We are in Nehemiah. And again, we looked at all of chapter two. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been introduced to Nehemiah and really his heart to rebuild the Jerusalem walls. In week one, we kind of saw and heard the uh, this hard news that Nehemiah was receiving of Jerusalem state. And it really just broke his heart. He was really broken before the Lord, hearing that Jerusalem uh, was in a dire state and the walls had crumbled to the ground. And then last week, we saw his robust prayer of repentance and his reliance on God's promises. And that leads us here really to Nehemiah's big moment. We don't really know much of Nehemiah's backstory, right? How, how did he get to this place where he has uh, an, the ear of the king and he's got this really incredible position? We don't really know much about his backstory, but what we do know is the character of Nehemiah, right? Because last week as we examined Nehemiah's prayer, one thing we kept seeing over and over was that he referred to himself as God's servant. And this week, as we look at how his prayer turns to action, we're going to see what defines a servant of God. 
So pastor and professor Tony Morita in his study of Nehemiah highlighted seven marks or seven characteristics of a godly servant. And I loved this. And so I thought, man, this is really good stuff uh, that I want to share with us. And so we're going to look at these seven marks, these seven characteristics of a godly servant. I think these points are both instructive and inspiring. And so we're going to move a little bit quicker this morning through these. And my hope is, is that you and I would see the call for us to be servants of our great God. So with that, let's just kind of start, let's jump right into the text and let's see these traits. The first one here, God's servant waits. Look back at the first few verses. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So Nehemiah is here before the king for months, and he has done his best to not be sad in front of the king. And this is a wise decision. Because Nehemiah has a really solid job, but he's trying to suppress his feelings, right? I can't help but think of uh, all the customer service jobs that I've had where, you know, you kind of have to put on a happy face. Um, I remember in uh, college, I worked at McDonald's. Um, I worked at Walmart in uh, my internship years. I've worked in college admissions, just all these different places where you have to just continue to save face. Man, I'll never forget either when I worked at McDonald's and we would see a bus pulling in full of a high school baseball team. And all of us would just groan audibly because we knew that there was about to be chaos to send upon the store. But before every single time when a bus would pull in, our manager would come up and be like, all right, everybody, put your smiles on. Nothing more frustrating than that, than to have to repress your frustration and just put on a grin and serve people. Hi, welcome to McDonald's. That's what happened for me. And I just think of, here's Nehemiah, and he's working for months, and he's having to just deal with this sorrow in his heart about the state of Jerusalem, and yet continue to serve the king. And he's working for months before he finally speaks up concerning what is troubling him. It had actually been three, almost four months since he first heard of the walls and was broken over the state of the people. Catch this, right? So Nehemiah hears this, but he doesn't act immediately, right? Nehemiah doesn't immediately go, I got to run and tell the king. Instead, he takes a moment to wait, to pray. And his prayer for success today in verse 11 of chapter 1 indicates that the time was apparently, it wasn't right for Nehemiah to make his bold appeal. So Nehemiah knew that he needed to wait for the right time. Now we see in this text that there's the mention of the queen in verse 6. And maybe that indicates that this is a private dinner occasion, right? Because it wasn't customary for the queen to appear at a formal banquet. He may have waited on a particular occasion. And it seems like maybe the queen's presence has influenced the king's decision. But nonetheless, Nehemiah knows now's the time to act. Now is the time to talk to the king. So what about you? Does waiting come easy for you, right? Is waiting something that you enjoy doing? The fruit of the Spirit is patience, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience is not only a fruit of the Spirit. Catch this. Patience is a characteristic of God. You are like God when you are patient. You are like God when you are patient. Now listen, I understand impatience. 
Okay, a couple weeks ago, they're moving uh, a, a grocery store here, Food Lion, from one location across the street to a bigger location. And word got out that they were wanting to clear out the store, so you got 50% off everything. Hannah and I are like, that sounds like right up our alley. So we show up to the store and start picking some things up, and there is a line around the store. And I was like, you know, should we really stay? Is it worth it to wait in a long line? Because I get impatient when there's like two or three people in front of me at Aldi. And I'm like, let's go. This is supposed to be quick. You know the routine. I get frustrated, especially in drive through lines. This week, Hannah and I were picking up a prescription for her at Walgreens. And we waited in this long line. I was getting really impatient. I'm like, shouldn't we just go in? No, it's safer to be in the car. Let's stay in the car. Go through this long line. And we pull up and they're like, oh, your prescription's at the other Walgreens. And I think my impatience just exploded. I was like, are you kidding me? We waited in this long line to not even have the medicine here. Oh, man. I mean, I can be this way about everything. I remember when I got a root canal and I just wanted to eat like normal, right? I just was like, when does this stop hurting? I can be impatient with healing or... Man, even over the last couple years as I've flown several times, going to the airport, every single time I think to myself, I am a fool for not paying for TSA pre-check, right? I hate waiting in these super long lines, but that's just kind of this thing and I, I, where we're all impatient, we all get frustrated. I have to ask and wonder, how much time, energy, and effort do we spend on not waiting? How much time, energy, and effort do we spend on not waiting? Now, I don't think waiting is easy for Nehemiah either. We're going to see throughout our time in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah is a man of action, right? Nehemiah, he's a doer. But you and I, we need to wait on the Lord. The mission of the church begins in the book of Acts where the followers of Jesus are told to wait. And they waited for six weeks after Christ ascended, waiting on the promises of God. So what do we do as we wait? What did Nehemiah do? What do we do in the meantime in the gap? We look at Nehemiah, and this is what he did. He prayed for four months. So in the waiting time, you and I, we need to be before God in worship and in prayer. Right? Isaiah 40, right? We think of this. uh, Those who wait upon the Lord, right, have the strength of an eagle. If we want that strength, then we have to wait. And how does that strength come? What comes by being in the presence of God? See, you and I can be active externally, but inwardly waiting, worshiping, contented, trusting, praying. You get a sense that Nehemiah's heart is prepared. If you are waiting, then tend to your heart. That's always the right thing to do. If you're waiting on whatever it may be, on a spouse, on a leadership position, on a promotion, uh, to have kids, then the one thing that will make you ready for that experience if and when that experience happens is when you are close to Jesus. So, Nehemiah also, as he waits, he plans. Later in the passage, we see that Nehemiah has a plan. Listen, y'all, planning is not unspiritual, right? Flying by the seat of your pants is not super spiritual and faithful, right? Nehemiah trusts the Lord, waits upon the Lord, but he also plans. He did research. He had prepared his speech. Also, he served. He doesn't doesn't stop serving for three or four months. No, he's active. He's alert. He's a good worker. It says he wasn't sad before the king. He was aware of what was going on. He wasn't isolated. He was trusting in the sovereignty of his God. And this is evident throughout the whole book of Nehemiah. Knowing that God is in control can enable you and I to wait on his timing. 
But see here that trusting in God's sovereignty doesn't mean being passive. It doesn't mean being fatalistic. Nehemiah, he's planning, he's serving, and he's praying as he waits. Waiting time is not wasted time. If you're praying, listening, planning, and serving. That's the first thing. The second thing, God's servant prays, right? We looked a little at this a little bit last week, so I'll just go through this quickly. But God's servant prays. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now again, this is something we looked at in explicit detail last week. But look at what's happening here. Why is your face sad, asks the king. And Nehemiah is afraid here. He admits this fear. And this is just such a great personal touch from Nehemiah, right? This is a great kind of humanizes Nehemiah. John Wayne famously said, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. Why is Nehemiah afraid? Well, a few reasons. One, he could die, right? He could sit here and and say the wrong thing, anger, frustrate, worry, concern the king, and he could die, right? He's risking his life here. He sensed that God had raised him up for this moment, and Nehemiah trusts in God in this moment, and he goes for it. Before speaking, he displays his loyalty. He says, may the king live forever. Listen, if you want to gather honey, you don't kick over the beehive and go, look, King Artaxerxes, you didn't messed everything up. You sent all these people out of Jerusalem and now you've just ransacked the place again. What's wrong with you? He doesn't get angry. He expresses his loyalty. And then he says his heart. He says, the city, father's, my father's grave, the gates are destroyed. He expresses his grief on a personal level, right? He focuses his attention to the graves. And he garners the king's sympathy because Nehemiah is very wise. Nehemiah's whole interaction shows us that God's grace comes in the moment of need. We are rarely given resources in advance, right? I feel like in church planning, that is just life, right? We're rarely given resources in advance. God meets us in the moment of need. So the king responds, okay, Nehemiah, what do you want? What are you requesting? And before Nehemiah answers, He thinks it's necessary to speak to someone else. It says, then I prayed. And last week, we saw that Nehemiah's prayer life, it challenges us with its its substance and its ceaselessness, right? Nehemiah prays robust prayers, but then he prays these rifle shot prayers throughout the day. There's this constant communion with God. Do you do that? When you drive, as you walk, when you prepare to speak to someone, Are you praying? Hudson Taylor said, It is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. Nehemiah shows us the power and importance of prayer. And he shows us a few things about prayer. He shows us the necessity of prayer. He shows us the practice, again, of unceasing prayer. He shows us the intimacy of prayer. Notice that he prays to the God of heaven. Not a distant God, but a caring Father. He shows us the confidence of prayer. Since he was praying to the God of heaven, he had no need of fearing a king here on earth. He shows us the 
effectiveness of prayer. The God of heaven answers his requests and gives him success. All right, let's keep moving. So we see that God's servant prays, but then we see next God's servant speaks. Look at verse 5. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. After a quick, quiet prayer, Nehemiah goes for it. You don't waste time with important people, right? You lead with the ask. This takes great faith. Nehemiah is risking his life. And you have to wonder, how does Nehemiah say this? Is is he reluctant? Is he saying it quickly, nervously? Have you ever been nervous when making a big ask? Maybe you're going to go and ask your boss for promotion. Maybe you're trying to ask your spouse about a big purchase. It's one thing to ask something that's lighthearted, but something that has great ramifications is another. And here's kind of what I want us to catch from this. Simple conversations can change lives. They can. We shouldn't despise taking on little tasks. We should look for daily opportunities to speak, whether they seem huge or small. Zechariah, when he's prophesying to the people in exile who were discouraged with the type of work they were doing, in Zechariah 4.10, he says, Do not despise the day of small things. This little conversation between Nehemiah and the king has huge ramifications. So at the store, at work, on the bike trail, when we embrace these simple acts of faith to speak up, to speak out, and that's huge. That's huge. So God's servant speaks. What's next? Well, God's servant plans. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it had pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah believes not only in dependent praying, but also in deliberate planning. Some people don't understand this, but let me just say this. Planning is spiritual. Right? Our praying should lead to planning. These two things go together. It's, it's to say that not planning, saying that that's spiritual and, and walking by faith, that's presumptuous. Right, Luke 14, building a tower. Consider how much it costs first. It's a very practical text for us as a church as we pray and we seek. How do we navigate these uncertain times? Right, how do we, in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of all of a, kind of this unrest as racial tensions rise, how do we love our neighbor? How do we speak the hope of the gospel? How do we continue to be salt and light in our city? How do we invest in each other? Planning is important. Right, some of you love to pray, but you may not be very organized. You have no plan. You have no direction. Right? For me, I, I mean, I'm thinking about this. I'd like to, you got all these different things. I'd like to lose weight, right? That's something I'm trying to do a little bit. My mom's challenging me. But if all I'm thinking is, oh, I want to lose a little bit of weight, but I have no plan, I'm going to be a little disappointed with the results. 
when we think about how this applies to all these areas of life, right? I want to lose weight or I want to finish college. I want to get a job. I want to speak the hope of the gospel to somebody. I want to change the world. Whatever it is, when you ask that person, what's your plan? And they say, I don't know. We start to realize that we need to have a concrete plan set in motion, right? As soon as Nehemiah is asked this question, what's your plan? He reveals what he had planned. So how many of you are planners, right? How many of you go to Staples and you get all excited, right? You got, you got your files, you got your notes, you're a little OCD, you love your charts, your graphs. They're kind of like a, a warm blankie that you wrap around yourself. That's awesome. But do you pray? Do you just pray after you've jacked up everything that you've planned, after everything kind of falls apart? You're like, okay, Lord, help me out. Or do you set your heart and your plan before the Lord? Of course, God may redirect our planning along the way, right? It says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. That's what Proverbs 16, 9 says. But nonetheless, we should still plan. Nehemiah's got one shot with the king. He had an idea of the basics prepared, right? He starts off with his purposes. He's focused. I want to go and rebuild a wall. He's a man with a mission. He knew what he was about. Why is your face sad? Well, the city's a mess king and I need to go fix it. He knew his timetable, right? He gave a time. In Nehemiah 5.14, Nehemiah is the governor in Jerusalem for 12 years, okay? That's crazy. And surely Nehemiah doesn't ask for 12 years off. Can you imagine doing that with your boss? Hey, can I just get 12 years paid vacation? I'll, I'll come right back in 12 years time. No, right? Now, commentaries seem to agree that Nehemiah would report back within the year when the wall was rebuilt and that he would then be appointed as governor. But at any rate, Nehemiah has a calendar, y'all. And listen, there's nothing unspiritual about a calendar, okay? There isn't. My wife and I have calendar dates because stuff keeps coming up and lately our calendar is a little, little bit lighter, right, with COVID and all of that. But nonetheless, there's nothing unspiritual about planning and being organized. Nehemiah had his paperwork in order, right? He's not just thinking on his feet. He knows what he needs. He needed letters for entry and safe passage, especially since Artaxerxes had previously stopped this building project that Ezra had started. So if you and I travel today, you need papers, right? We're on our way to the airport. We're always like, hey, do we got everything? Do we have our license or if we're flying internationally? Do we have our passport? He knew his needs. He says, King, I need a letter to Asaph also because... I need lumber, right? Nehemiah was so prepared that he knew who's running the lumber yard. It was the king's private reserve. Here's what Nehemiah does. He prays for God to change the heart of the king, and he gets his duck in a, ducks in a row, and he's ready when it happens. He even had plans for his house, right? In verse 8, it says, I had, uh, he was talking about all the things that the lumber was going to build, and one of them is his own house. Because Nehemiah knew he needed to live somewhere. Where am I going to live? I'm going to get some wood from Asaph. Nehemiah is ready. Nehemiah is ready. So God's servant plans. But then we see five, God's servant testifies. Look at the end of verse eight. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And the king granted my request. Changing hearts, that's God's specialty. God worked in the heart of this king to accomplish his purposes. Nehemiah recognizes this, and so he testifies, the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah's purpose here is not autobiographical. It's doxological. It's 
worshipful. He draws attention to the hero of this story. The hero is his invincible God. Nehemiah understands that what has happened is a sign of God's presence and activity in his life. The practicality of Nehemiah's story is displayed in the fact that there are no burning bushes, right? There's no parting of seas. There's no suspension of the laws of nature. There's no walking on water. It's just the quiet hand of the sovereign God at work in preserving his people. Nehemiah knows where the credit goes. It's all due to God. It's all glory to God. You see, God likes to use goobers and misfits like us because he alone gets the glory. The hand of God here, it's an expression, God's hand, favor, a blessing. It's used as an an expression of the sovereignty of God, the favor of God, right? And it's all over Ezra and Nehemiah. So are you asking, are you asking God to have his hand be upon your life? Are you seeking him? There are no extraordinary miracles in Ezra and Nehemiah. But his hand is at work. Never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. His hand is always at work. Never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. Let me show you something. Let me just show you something real quick. The walls that Nehemiah goes to build, they're built in 52 days. 52 days. Do you know what that means? It means that Nehemiah spent more time in prayer and preparation than building the walls. Nehemiah spent three to four months praying before the Lord and then boom, 52 days, those walls are up. God's hand on your life is what matters. I mentioned basketball last week, right? And, And I talked about Jordan. Let's talk about LeBron. Okay, you watch a regular old basketball team, they're doing okay, you got some good athletes on there, some pros, you throw LeBron in, and all of a sudden it's an all-star game. When God shows up, everything changes. Think about in the New Testament, the church in Antioch, right? It says, and in Acts chapter 11, it says, And a hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. The church in Antioch is a model church in many ways. And what's the secret? God's hand is on them. God's hand is on them. So we see that God's servant testifies. What do we see next? Well, God's servant, God's servant leads. Let's read a a bigger chunk here. Um, Let's jump to verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do at Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode, and I went out by the, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. 
Then I went on the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned, Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we might no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah makes it to Jerusalem, perhaps for the first time ever. And he faces challenges, and here's what he does. He meets them with exemplary leadership. Right In verses 9 through 12, Nehemiah travels through rough terrain, some 9 to 10 miles per day. It may have taken around four months just camping at night and surveying the land. He rests in Jerusalem before doing anything else. Right? You can't be exhausted and lead. It leads to weakness, anxiety, a loss of perspective, and more. So Nehemiah starts by resting up so that he can lead well, and then he begins the work. And it's now been about eight months of planning and travel. And then guess what happens? He faces opposition. And who are these guys? Well, Samballot was the governor of Samaria to the north. Tobiah, whose name is Jewish and means Yahweh is good, ruled the Ammonites to the east. And Geshem was the leader of the Arabs to the south. These are all the power players. They all opposed a fortified Jerusalem because it threatened their political position. It also threatened them financially because a rebuilt Jerusalem meant that trade would again run through Jerusalem. And they were all incredibly displeased and they joined together to ridicule this project. And we're going to read a lot about these guys in the coming weeks because their opposition is going to escalate. But here's the second thing we see. Leaders do good research, right? Nehemiah realizes if I'm going to build this thing, if we're going to have this go about, we need some good men. He knows that he can't roll solo. He can't do it by himself. And friends, that's such powerful, powerful examples for us because we too need each other to do the Lord's work. Nobody can do this whole Jesus thing solo. We can't. We were built, wired, connected for community. And he goes at night, right? He's not attracting too much attention. He knows that spies may have been sent by the enemy. He doesn't want a lot of chatter in Jerusalem among the Jews. And so he kind of does this vision trip to investigate so that he can rally the troops so they can build this wall. And that's what we see next is that leaders can build a team and motivate them. So he starts, verse 17, he starts sharing the burden and his mission to see Jerusalem rebuilt, to see the walls rebuilt again. We're not given the details, but somehow he gathers a very large group. And it's quite remarkable that this newcomer could, this newcomer could gather such a team, that he could inspire confidence. But here's how he does it. He does it by drawing their attention to God. There's no gimmicks. There's no tricks. There's no puppet ministry. It's just a God-centered vision. Nehemiah isn't a one-man army. He's got a squad. He's got his team. And chapter 3 is going to give us a list of guys that contributed. Nehemiah was not a one-man team. And then finally, let's see this. God's servant trusts. God's servant trusts. But when, uh, we'll look at the text again. Look at verses 19 and 20. 
But when Sambalat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. When opposition shows up, there's a confidence in God that is displayed. The taunting trio, first they engage in mockery, and then they begin to question Nehemiah's motives. Oh, are you against the king? What are you doing here? Jesus told his disciples that we would face persecution and that we would have to endure all manner of evil things spoken against us. That's what he said in Matthew 5. Nehemiah doesn't wrestle with pigs. You guys ever heard that expression, don't wrestle with pigs? It's only fun for the pigs. He stays focused and he expresses his confidence in his God. The God of heaven, the sovereign God, he's going to make us prosper. You have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem because God's name dwells here. I've talked with a lot of people over the last several weeks about everything that's going on in our world. It's a trying time. It is. Now, we can step back and look historically and see how society has gone through ups and downs, diseases, famines, persecutions, and the like, and give ourselves some kind of confidence that we'll make it through. But our confidence isn't in history. Our confidence is in the one who wrote history. Our confidence is the one who spoke the world into existence. Our confidence is in the king of the ages. And Jesus tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail, that the church will continue to grow, that the church will continue to flourish. And so, yeah, this is weird. I get that. It's June. I haven't seen some of you since March, and I miss you guys deeply. And this is a weird season. But our confidence is in the name of our great God. We know that his hand is with us and that he is moving and guiding and causing his good purposes to come about. And Nehemiah knows that this is not just any people. And this is not just any city. Nehemiah reminds me of another patient, trusting, praying, working servant who set his face to Jerusalem some 400 years later, and his name is Jesus. Like Nehemiah, Jesus was sensitive to the sufferings of his people. He left a palace and got on his animal, a little colt, and rode it into Jerusalem. And the hand of God was upon him in unique ways. He too faced an onslaught of criticism and persecution, which continued to escalate until they finally put him to death, nailing him to a cross. Nehemiah's work in Jerusalem was important work, but it wasn't the most important work in Jerusalem, for another would come to Jerusalem to do that most important work. He would rise to take our place on the cross, and he would rise from the dead, and death could not hold him. The God of heaven, his father, would make him prosper. He would not abandon his soul to Sheol. He would raise his son as the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would raise him as the vindicated and victorious son of the living God. He's not building walls anymore. No, Jesus is building his church. 
And through Christ, we can experience the gracious hand of God on our lives. Through Christ, we can know the comfort of the Lord. We can be a part of the body of Christ. And we can put our strength in hands to good work for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we so desperately need you. Lord, as we look at Nehemiah and his willingness to serve you, to be your servant, and to go and rebuild these walls in Jerusalem, oh Lord, we see the need for us to be rebuilding. Rebuilding the bridges that have been long since burnt down as racial injustice has been loudly touted throughout generations. We see the brokenness, Lord, as disease has ransacked business after business and home after home as people are struggling to figure out what's next and where to go. And Lord, we see just a world that is in turmoil and chaos as these things are just two of a myriad of diseases and difficulties and hardships that people face. And all the while, Lord, we know the hope of the gospel. We know the good news of the one who set his face to Jerusalem, who made a way and who is building his church. We know the king of the ages. We know Jesus Christ. Lord, would you give us hearts and minds that are set on fire for you, Lord? Would you give us a passion that burns for you, that, that yearns to see your name be made much of, your name be made famous in this place and in every place, Lord? Would we see ourselves as servants of the living God and that we would go forth speaking the hope of the gospel and all we do and all we say that we would trust in you, Lord Jesus. Make much of yourself in our lives. Make much of yourselves in Coram Deo. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Coram Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.